I want you to think about a time that you really looked forward to. It could be the day before your graduation. It could be coming together and seeing a good friend that you haven't seen in years. It could be your wedding day. One of my great memories is preparing for uh, my wedding day back in 2015. It wasn't too long ago. Some of you were there. And Leah and I prepared for our wedding on two very different days. She was really excited and she expressed to me that she was up all night anticipating the wedding. And I went to bed and slept like a baby. (laughs) We deal with stress in different ways, right? And excitement in different ways. But when we see the gospel today, I want you to understand that it's not a coincidence that Jesus uses holy matrimony as his first, the occasion of his first miracle. In fact, when we look at the text today, we see that this is very intentional. And as I've been telling our Old Testament class this morning, um, when you know the Old Testament, when you know the prophets, when you know the writings in the Old Testament, you see some things that you don't necessarily see if uh, you're ignorant on that. Now, it's not to say that you can't pick up things from Scripture. Of course, you still can. But there's some very significant things in this passage today. Number one, God has promised a new covenant. And we see that today in the Old Testament reading. Number two, Jesus institutes it. He initiates it. He begins it. And number three, the purpose of it is to glorify God and to, and don't miss this part, delight man. The purpose of it is to glorify God and delight man. And that's why we have this take place at a wedding feast. And God, God has that as his providence. Number one, God's promised a new covenant. Each of today's scripture passages points to this reality, doesn't it? The reality of the new covenant. Now, we're coming off liturgically the feast of the baptism of our Lord here today, right? And so we're coming off of the idea that Jesus takes a rite of purification and takes it and makes it something that is Christian baptism, which in addition to purifying us from sins, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the baptized. Keep that in mind. And as we look at the text today, we don't just see that it's a marriage, but we see that it's a marriage all about wine and gifts. In our Old Testament reading, let's look at it together. We read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. And Austin read this to us in verse 4. You shall no longer, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be termed, no more rather, sorry, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land is married. Why is it that God's people are called forsaken and desolate? You probably are wondering that 
as you look at Isaiah 62, but perhaps you know some of the history of what's going on at this point. What's going on with God's Old Testament people in Isaiah 62? Well, they're very distraught. They're, rem- remember what's gone on with them, that they've been taken captive first by the empire of Babylon and then by the Persian empire after it and King Cyrus. And so how are they feeling? Forsaken. Forsaken. Abandoned. And then the second term used in Hebrew for, is desolate, which can also be translated devastated, laid waste to, in desolation. Many thought that God had forsaken them at this point in the Old Testament. It had been hundreds of years after all. The kingdom of David broke apart centuries before into two kingdoms. Those of you that remember your, your history from the Old Testament, right? In the book of Kings and Chronicles, there's these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And it seemed that God's people not only were fragmented, but now by the exile were being erased, right? Were being desolated, were being laid waste to. That was a very real thing as they were carted off involuntarily from their homes and their temple was trashed. And they were scratching their heads saying, but we're the people of God. But we're God's chosen people. Has God abandoned us? Has God abandoned us? Has he forgotten about us? Remember that God had promised that he would always be with them and that their kingdom would be without end back at Abraham's time. So what's going on here? Well, they're half right. They have been desolated, but they're only half right. God has not abandoned them. Why are they allowed to be destroyed? Well, the book of Isaiah is full of the answers to that. I can't go through them all, but suffice it to say that they suffer because of their leader's sin, because of their injustice, because of their disobedience to God, corporately and individually, and because of the corruption of their culture and personal sinfulness. Under the Old Covenant, you see, the Old Testament, the system that God set up, they were to be faithful to God through several different ways. The old covenant was set up, and it wasn't bad. It was set up by God, after all. But what the old covenant could not remedy was the fact that each person, though he or she was a chosen child of God, was nevertheless sinful, was nevertheless unable to be holy as God commanded them to be holy. And so as they were not even trying very hard anymore, God allowed them to be made desolate. Not just as punishment, but to see their utter helplessness before him. So how is it then that Isaiah can say that they'll go forth in righteousness in chapter 62? How is it that Isaiah can say that Zion will be righteous, will be sinless, will be holy. The answer also lies in the first part. Look at it with me again. For Zion's sake, 
I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And not only will Zion become righteous, but she'll be a sign to others. Look at verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And look how grand it gets in verse 3, even grander. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. All of that precedes verse 4 where we started. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For a young, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Who is the I speaking in this verse or in this chapter? For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. It's the Lord. The Lord speaking through Isaiah, saying that no longer will they be forsaken. And how is this to be accomplished? How is this to be accomplished? Do you see, this is the Old Testament law and prophets pointing to Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Israel, the Hebrews, cannot do this. But there will come forth from the root of Jesse one who can. And that, of course, we know is Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is this righteousness going forth and is the manifestation of their righteousness going forth. And he's the hope of those who marry him. Think to your New Testament now. What's marriage a sign of? We say it at our wedding services in the preface. It's a sign of the unity betwixt, in the Old English, Christ and his church. Between God and his people. And so it's not wrong to think about salvation and the new covenant as a marriage, as a wedding between God and his people who had been utterly separated and utterly destroyed beforehand. Jesus talks about this himself. Jesus, the Messiah, comes and is the completion of the Old Covenant. And he talks about wine, too. What do we say every week? Actually, I say it, standing up there at the altar. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Covenant. Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. And it's over wine, the words of institution. It's not coincidental, do you see? This is all wrapped up together. Every point in today's gospel passage and in our liturgy wraps together with the Old Testament and the prophets beautifully. Even in, uh, even, every point of today's gospel has significant meaning connecting to the Old Testament 
even the first verse of the gospel reading. Look at that with me today. John chapter 2. On what day does the wedding feast happen? On the third day? Did you just skip over that? On the third day? What's that talking about? It's meant to it's meant to ask it's meant to make you ask. On the third day from what? Right? But of course it's an allusion to the resurrection, too. It's an allusion to on the third day, the commencement of this wedding. Now look with me at verses three through five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Why does the wine run out? Is it poor planning? Did they not order enough? We don't know. But we do know that there's a spiritual meaning behind this too. For as D.A. Carson, a commenter and pastor, writes in his source, there's a connection between this and the state of Israel. For wine to run out was a devastating thing. It was a great shame in this culture. But more than that, it's indicative of where God's Old Testament people are before Jesus. Of where every one of us is before Jesus. Dry, desolate, shameful, cracked, broken. Remember I said it's no coincidence that wine's used here. What does the wedding feast represent here? God's people. God's people. A marriage is all about covenant between man and woman. And here we see the marriage covenant as, an in, as a revelation, as a manifestation of God's desire for his relationship with people. What does it mean that the wine is run out? Well, we get a hint in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, you might take from that that this is a lot of wine that Jesus makes, and that's true. But there's something even more going on here, right? What is the purpose of the water jars here? It's an Old Covenant, an Old Testament purpose. What is it? It's right there in the text. Purification. Purification. What is the Old Covenant all about? Whether it's water or the sacrifice of animals on the altar or the smoke offerings or you name it. What's the Old Covenant all about? Purification, cleansing, somehow making God's people clean and acceptable before God. But the water is there and the wine is run out. What does Jesus take and make into wine? The purification water of the Old Covenant. 
Do you see how important this actually is when you understand what's going on in the Old Testament? That in the, through the Old Covenant, Jesus takes purifying water and turns it into gladdening, inebriating wine. That's the contrast that's being shown between the Old and New Covenants here at this wedding. Now, in the Old Testament, wine is associated with gladness, right? How many of you are familiar with Psalm 104, verse 15? You bring forth grass from the cattle, the psalmist says of God, and plants for the service of mankind, that they may bring food out of the earth and wine to make glad the hearts of men. And the prophets talk about wine too, as you might have guessed. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 12, we read this, They shall come and sing aloud in the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. The prophet Amos says it this way, looking ahead to the time of Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities that inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. That's Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. The earth also shall yield its fruit ten thousand fold on each vine, and there shall be thousands of clusters. Each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster produce a thousand grapes, and each grape produce a core of wine, and those who have hungered shall rejoice. Moreover, also they shall behold marvels, new marvels, Every day. That's from the book of Second Baruch, chapter 29, verse 5. St. Augustine of Hippo, writing early in the uh, 4th century, I believe, writes this. He says, Therefore our Lord Jesus Christ changes water into wine. And what was tasteless acquires taste. And what was not intoxicating intoxicates. When he turned the water itself into wine, he showed us that the ancient scriptures come true in him too. For by his order, the jars were filled. And keeping along with the meaning of this passage, who do you suppose St. Mary, the mother of Jesus, represents? Who does she represent? What does she say? First of all, Jesus says that his time hasn't come to her, which is interesting. We'll get back to that. But how does she reply in verse 6? With faith. With faith. What does she say? Now, there's six stone waters there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. But before that, sorry, in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. This faith represents the faith of the church. 
and God's people, God's Old Testament people, seeing who Jesus is. Because remember, many of them did. Many Hebrews became followers of Jesus. We can't forget. Jesus hesitates and says that his hour had not come yet. Why does he say that? Why does he say that? Is he just putting her off? No. He's looking forward to the cross. Because the true initiation, the true institution of this new covenant won't be consummated until his death upon the cross. And yet, and yet, he makes the wine. He gives the foretaste. He gives people the hope and the joy and the gladness of what's to come. I believe he does this out of his great love for the world, not just as the lights, but as the bread and wine of the world. You see, dear friends, in Jesus, Zion has gone forth in glory. In Jesus, God's Old Testament people can be transformed. In Jesus, even the Gentiles, even we, most of us, that are not from the chosen people of God, have been transformed by the waters of baptism and the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the new wine that comes in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The feast has begun. So what does this mean to us today? We join Jesus in this feast. I think sometimes we get bogged down in our Christian life, don't we? We think of ourselves as forsaken, Sometimes we think of ourselves as desolate. And while those feelings can be very real because of what goes on in our life, while we do go through trials and turmoil, that's not the reality of who you are. It's not the reality of who I am. It's not the reality of whose we are in Jesus Christ. The wedding day is here. The wedding day has come. We no longer anticipate Jesus being our own, being in relationship fully with God. If you're a Christian, the feast has begun and the wine is flowing. You've been given a new name. There's a reason that when we baptize people, we name them. Because in Jesus, we're given a new name. Ours is the Lord who has changed our status. And so... Why is it that so often we fall back and don't drink of the wine? Why is it so often we get distracted and we forget and we become miserable and lonely and buy into the lie that we've been forsaken and we're burnt out and we can't just we just can't do it. We just can't do it anymore. Why? Well, because we're not turning to Christ as we should. Because we're not seeing the reality of who we are because we're cutting ourselves off either from word or from sacrament. Because the wine has stopped. But it doesn't stop because God stops it. It stops because we stop it. It stops because we don't drink of it. Friends, in practical steps, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Let the wine flow. If you're relying on coming to church to read your Bible, you're just getting a little trickle. Let it flow. Let it flow. Become inebriated with it. That's right. Be drunk 
on the Lord. Be drunk on the Lord. Let Him pervade you. Let His Holy Spirit fill you. In word and sacrament, read His word to you. And likewise, Jesus has told you where the font of drink is. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink of it. Come, drink, or dip, because it's corona tide, right? But <laughs> partake of the sacraments as regularly as you can, as often as you can, because it's the source of your life. Word and sacrament, wine and marriage. Friends, don't neglect the gift that God's given you, for the new covenant has come. And on top of this, share that good news with others. Remember, you are the light of the world. But if you're not being glad in the Holy Spirit, if you're not filling yourself up, how are other people going to see you? And therefore, how are they going to see Christ through you? Do you see, we have this great message to offer the world that they too can be full of joy and gladness, not in some superficial, happy way, but in a deep, abiding way that comes from being in relationship with Jesus Christ constantly and being filled by him. Friends, be that well-watered garden. Produce the fruit. Produce the wine. Help others drink. The wedding has come. The feast is here. Come to the table. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.